Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. My name is Winnie Caesar. I'm the Global Head of Strategy here at Credit Sites. And today I'm talking to Sandra Chow, who is our co-head of Asia Pacific Research. If you've listened to prior editions, we've had a few different focus on the Asia region lately with our recap of our Singapore and Hong Kong conferences. And then Zach Griffiths met up with our colleague Zerlina to talk about Asia Macro, which was a really great podcast as well. Today, we're going to talk about Asia investment grade sector strategy. And Sandra has really been leading the charge, working with our analyst team in Singapore to put that sector strategy together. Sandra, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Winnie. I am really excited because as a strategist, sector strategy is something that we are frequently asked about by clients. And I think that this is one of the areas that we can really highlight our amazing team of fundamental analysts who are in the weeds on single names and on sector trends, and then also overlay some of the macro And in the process of constructing sector strategy, it really is a two-way street. We're always working with and talking to the analysts about key catalysts within their specific sectors, things driving different issuer performance, and really trying to marry the macro with the micro. And I had the pleasure of getting to do that with the Singapore team, uh, with Sandra really leading the charge on these efforts. Sandra, do you want to talk a little bit first about kind of the highlights of the Asia IG sector strategy and perhaps a little bit about why you felt like now was a good time to roll out Asia IG sector strategy? Hi, Widi. Yeah, thank you. Great questions. So sector strategy is something that a lot of clients have been asking us for over the past few years. And it's something that until recently we hadn't really had the bandwidth to do. So it's great that we've been able to collaborate with the U.S. strategy team and apply the framework that you guys have over here in Asia as well. So we used the um, BAML um, indices and we looked at the Asia X Japan US dollar investment grade index. And broadly speaking, we found that there were a handful of sectors where we saw compelling valuations, just a couple where we thought spreads were too tight and the majority, I think we would market perform on. So in terms of the outperform sectors, the ones that we saw value in were retail, media, tech and electronics. And then in the financial space, the non-bank financial institutions and insurance. Great. So let's talk first about kind of the fundamental perspective. You mentioned some of our 
outperforms. What were the sectors that stood out to you in the conversations that you had with analysts in talking about putting together the sector strategy where there was a really high conviction, kind of strong fundamental view that, that things were going well or going to improve? So one of the strongest fundamental outlooks that we saw was for China tech. Previously, this was a sector that had kind of got beaten up because they were facing regulatory headwinds both at home in China and also from the U.S. Uh, with some kind of political tensions as well. But over the past, I would say, six months or so, we've seen an easing of the domestic regulatory stance in China, and that's provided a very strong fundamental catalyst for some of these names to outperform. We have seen a bit of a rally in some of the names already year to date, but we still think that spreads wide for the sector compared to the broader Asia investment grade index. So there's still, still some scoop, scope for outperformance. Within the index classifications, the China tech names are kind of split between three sectors. So they are covered in the retail sector, which includes some of the e-commerce firms like Alibaba, Meituan, or JD.com. They're also included in the media component, which includes Tencent, the gaming company and uh, social media company, as well as Baidu, which runs a search engine. And they're also included, of course, in the tech and electronic sector, which is more the hardware makers, uh, PC and smartphone makers, such as Lenovo and Xiaomi. That's super interesting that we are feeling high conviction, good fundamentally on China technology. That really kind of caught me by surprise when we started having these conversations because it just had been so beat up last year. And in the U.S., it feels like there's definitely some green shoots on the tech front in some of the subsectors, but it doesn't feel universal quite yet. Yeah, I guess in China, there's part of the COVID reopening story as well. So for example, mm -hmm. e-commerce companies have been benefiting from improving online retail sa sales, margins are improving, people are spending a little bit more on low ticket discretionary items post the COVID reopening. And that's kind of spilled over into advertising revenue recovery as well. So that's benefiting for example, Tencent um, and Baidu to some extent. So there were a lot of regulatory mm -hmm. restrictions on new games in China, and that was starting to relax about a year ago. So now we've seen that pipeline picking up again, which is benefiting Tencent. Is there any risk that those re regulatory restrictions come back if they've been relaxed a bit recently? Our base case is that the worst is behind us already. Recently, the regulators announced uh, the end of a probe into Alibaba and Tencent's financial services platforms. And with the fine that was imposed, we feel that's kind of drawn a line under the issue for the time being. The other issue is that with economic growth looking a little bit wobbly in China, the tech sector is one area where the government may be focusing on trying to encourage more growth as well. So from a macro perspective, we think it also makes sense for the authorities to adopt a more benign regulatory stance for the industry. Yeah, absolutely. So you also mentioned media and retail, which is interesting because these are two sectors in our U.S. investment grade sector strategy where we've actually been a bit more cautious for a, a mix of reasons, some single name issues, some kind of cyclicality, some relative value just not looking particularly attractive. Do you want to talk a bit more about the media and retail side of things in the Asia IG market? Sure. So the retail one is largely e-commerce. We've seen sales picking up in recent quarters. And margins are stabilizing. And for the media side, some of it is driven by improved advertising for sectors such as offline travel or dining or local services. 
So while spending on large ticket discretionary items still seem to be a little bit sluggish in China, and part of that is maybe related to the real estate market, which we can talk about later, for the smaller ticket items, such as eating out or, or traveling, that seems to be benefiting the names that we cover here. That makes a lot of sense. And so let's talk a little bit about maybe sectors where the fundamental story is a little bit more uncertain, but we have a more neutral or positive view on valuations. Mm. So we, yeah, I was mentioning real estate just now. So that's one sector which uh, still has a lot of hair on at the moment and fundamentals are very, very shaky. So for those unfamiliar with the sector, it kind of went into downturn around late 2021 with the collapse of China's largest property developer, Evergrande. And since then, many, many other developers have either fallen into distress or have defaulted already. Um, looking at the sector data, it still seems that a sustained rebound in home prices is still some way off. So within the Asia IG universe, it's quite bifurcated. So there are some very, very strong state-owned developers, such as China Overseas Land or China Resources Land. And these have been very stable throughout the property downturn. On the other hand, there are also some outliers which are trading very, very wide, such as GLP or Long4. And these kind of skewing the overall valuations of the real estate sector. So when we look at it optically, it looks very cheap. But when we strip out, say, two or three or four names which are trading very wide, then the sector doesn't look um, so attractive anymore from a relative value perspective. Yeah, I think that that is a problem in real estate pretty much across the globe at this point, because we have a similar dynamic in the euro markets and maybe less extreme in the U.S. market, but still real estate definitely making headlines on a regular basis. Yeah, that's right. The other sector, which is uh, a little bit more uncertain in terms of fundamentals, may be the non-bank financial institutions. So we have an outperform on this segment, but it's a very diverse sector. So it includes issuers such as the Chinese state-owned asset management companies. Um, it includes uh, leasing companies, Chinese security houses, Korean credit card companies, and Indian non-bank financial institutions. Um, so within this group, we would say that individual credit selection is very important. Our top picks within the sector would include the Chinese asset management firm Sinda, the lesser Far East Horizon, and then in India, PFC and REC. But on the other hand, there are also another Chinese asset manager, Orient AMC, where we will be very cautious on, and that's one of our pans within the sector. Credit selection as being very important is definitely a, a universal theme across markets as well. And, and I think ju just sector strategy as a whole has been really hard as different regions have recovered at different paces and, you know, kind of lingering pandemic issues have resulted in some challenges in terms of managing supply chains or dominating consumer preferences or leaving market valuations all over the place. So this is a, a definitely a great time to kind of roll out sector strategy. So let's talk about sectors where we have a less constructive outlook or, or perhaps where we have a view that valuations are a bit too tight. We have two underperformed recommendations in capital goods and banks. Can you discuss the view on these sectors? Are we going to have an Asia banking crisis or is this more a rel call? 
I really, really hope not, because that would be bad news for everything else that we're positive on as well if we had a banking crisis. But for both of those sectors, our underperforms are largely due to valuations rather than fundamental credit concerns. So banks we still see as a safe sector. Credit indicators are looking comfortable. But the sector has lagged the Asian investment grade performance year to date, even though spreads are very, very tight. Within the Asian banks, we see limited value in bank senior spreads, potentially some opportunities in tier two, for example, in Australia, Indonesia, Thailand, and some of the Korean banks. And then people ask about AT1s a lot. And we think that AT1s are more a view on market volatility rather than kind of the specific credit fundamentals. And right now, markets are in a fairly stable state. So if you are expecting more volatility, there may be a better entry point for some of the Asian AT1s within the investment grade component that would be in Korea and DBS Bank in, in Singapore, which have investment grade rated AT1s. And then capital goods is the other sector which we have an underperform on. And again, this is largely because of valuations. The sector, we compared it to basic industries and capital goods trades relatively tight because they have a much heavier weighting of high quality issuers uh, rated single A and above. There are names such as the Hong Kong conglomerates and some of the Chinese government owned industrials. And there's even a AAA rated uh, Singapore Technologies Engineering. So from a relative value perspective, we see limited outperformance from that sector over the coming year. Yeah, that makes total sense. I, I too, am hoping for no more banking crises, at, at least for this year. Maybe we've had enough for 2023 and, and we'll look ahead to 2024. I was also really struck when we were talking about putting together the Asia IG sector strategy. The range of valuations across sectors is really it's very wide. I mean, much wider than in the U.S. across sectors with I think some sectors trading in, you know, kind of the mid 200 to even low 300 basis point area and then banks and capital goods both trading sub 100 basis point. Yeah. And that's why I guess it's so important to have that dialogue with the individual sector analysts as well, because there's a lot of nuances even within individual sectors as well, about why things are trading a certain way. Absolutely. So as the analysts were putting together their sector strategy, having these conversations, did anything come up that was, you know, an analyst had a really material fundamental concern and felt that wasn't necessarily appropriately reflected in those aggregate valuations or just any kind of interesting nuance that might have come up? Actually, there were relatively few fundamental concerns. And I guess that's reflected in our sector valuations as well. And the fact that we only have two sectors on underperform and that both of those underperforms are really due to what we feel are too tight valuations rather than any fundamental sector concerns. Um, I guess on a bottom-up basis, the credit quality still looks fairly resilient for most of the issuers that we cover in Asia. And the other interesting thing about Asia, I guess, which differentiates it from the US and Europe is that we have a high, very high proportion of government or government-linked issuers, uh, which means that their credit profiles are stronger. They tend to have better access to funding and therefore we would see a more stable credit outlook for these companies. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the government linked market in terms of the, the local authority market. Can you walk us through a little bit more? What is the local authority market? How should investors who are maybe not as familiar with Asian investment grade 
think about some of the different factors that play into fundamentals and valuations. Mm, sure. So the local authority sector within Asia IG is largely composed of Chinese local government financing vehicles or LGFEs. These are entities which are owned by local governments and they're usually set up to fund projects such as public infrastructure or services. Uh, so maybe like a metro, um, a toll road, um, maybe parks or, or sports facilities. So usually long tenor projects that may not always be commercially viable. And these a few years ago were very heavy issuers of US dollar bonds. Now, the name is a little bit confusing because even though it's called the local government financing vehicle, um, they do not have explicit support from China's central government. Um, so actually, their credit profiles are underpinned by the individual local government's capacity or willingness to support, which can vary a lot between provinces. So you can have some coastal provinces which are very wealthy, have established industries, um, good trade, good, good connections. And there are others, maybe in more rural areas, where it's very different from a financing perspective. This is a very interesting sector. It's one which is a little bit opaque. Historically, the issuers have been a bit reluctant to disclose as much information as you would see from regular issuers. Of course, they're not listed as well, so you wouldn't have any of the regular exchange filings that you get. And even in terms of investor communication, sometimes they are, are not as forthcoming as international investors would expect. So as a result, you find that it's a sector that tends to be dominated by Chinese investors, those who feel comfortable with exposure to these entities, maybe because they have other business dealings with them or other financing deals which they've entered to in the past, and they feel comfortable with, with these credits. And so that makes for a very strange dynamic in terms of valuations. You may find credits which most international investors think are trading too tight, but still they're absorbed by Chinese investors because they are comfortable with that thing. So how does one even go about understanding each local government and their magnitude of support of that, that feels like a pretty daunting challenge? It is. We're very fortunate to have um, a great LGFE and macro analyst, Selina Zeng, who I believe also recorded a podcast with you last week. And she has very methodically put together a framework for looking at these LGFEs, so looking at them province by province, looking at the uh, fiscal position of each local government, what industries they have, what uh, capacity the banking sector would have, and then looking at that individual LGFE as well, because one province may have several LGFEs. So we would maybe look at the importance of that particular LGFE within the local economy, potentially what the contagion risks might be you know, and things like that to try and assess the potential for government support for that entity. Well, we are very glad to have Zerlina on the team to help Absolutely. us wade through these issues. Were there other issues that came up in terms of maybe issuer concentration or fragmentation in different sectors that the analysts had to navigate as they were launching this sector strategy? I guess with Asia, the interesting thing is that probably about a third of it is uh, sovereign or agency risk. So in a way, that's one that we don't need to worry so much about from a pure credit standpoint. And then even among the other sectors, a lot of those have some kind of government links or implied state support. So for example, about 10% of the index is banks, 11% is energy, and um, these are largely um, state-owned energy companies. So, of course, energy being a very st strategic industry 
the expectation would be that the government would uh, support these issuers um, if they got into trouble, even though there's no explicit guarantee. Um, and utilities, again, another very strategic sector. Um, so in a way, that kind of skews your credit analysis, because in addition to looking at the absolute um, financial metrics and the balance sheet of these issuers, you also have to kind of think about um, the expectation of government support. So a, a quasi-sovereign type analysis in yeah. the sector strategy. How about the geographic nuances? You know, not every country is the same from both the, the sovereign side of things and, and also just industry concentration and issuer concentration. Was there a discussion of maybe needing to have a sector strategy plus a, a country overlay? Yes. And that was interesting because then it gets very granular. So China's still greater China. So that would include Hong Kong, Macau and Taiwan, as well as mainland China. That accounts for over half of the Asia IG index. And then the other big country weightings would be Indonesia and Korea, which are both about 14% uh, or so of the index. But when we were splitting the index, slicing and dicing it with your team's help, I think there was some discussion about should we look at Indian banks versus Chinese banks or should we look at Indonesian energy versus China energy? And the problem is once you start slicing and dicing, then it becomes very complicated and, and very messy and difficult to get the message across. So we kept everything relatively high level at the sector level, but then with the individual sector snapshots, hopefully readers can go in and appreciate the nuances within those sector classifications. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always great to have more granularity, but you do get to the point where having a sector strategy or any kind of strategy that is so in the weeds it's just better to maybe express that in terms of your single name recommendations and have that specificity at the more micro level than kind of the macro sector strategy level. So Sandra, with that, I am going to wrap it up. Thank you so much for chatting with me today about the Asia IG sector strategy launch. I learned a lot in this process. Uh, a lot of these Asia IG issuers and sector dynamics are not something that I was super familiar with it. So this was a really great exercise for me. And I am sure our clients at Credit Sites will also learn a lot. Thank you so much um, for you and your team's work as well on this, Vinny. It was great to collaborate and put together a holistic strategy product. We are happy to do it. Thank you, Sandra, for joining me today. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have any questions for me or Sandra or the broader Credit Sites team, feel free to reach out to us using the Ask an Analyst function on the creditsites.com website. If you are not a Credit Sites subscriber and you're interested in a trial, you can also go to creditsites.com and request to be set up with one. Thank you, everyone. And with that, we will see you next time. Credit Sites Flamer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.